Hello everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the saga of World War II, a Cass's Belly Project. This time, I'd like to start by giving a shout out to Tony from San Francisco for being the show's first Patreon patron. If you would like to contribute to the show yourself, you can go to patreon.com slash Podcasts. You can also get the Patreon app for your phone, which is really simple and easy to use. There is some new bonus content up on there, now for the $6 a month patron level members. There you can see the planned episode outline, as well as just a view of my workspace, or my study, as I like to call it. You can also contact me directly at cassisbellyguy at gmail.com with any comments or corrections. I appreciate any feedback you might have. I would also like to issue a correction from episode 25. During my description of the Battle of Midway, I described the Japanese carrier decks as being crisscrossed with fuel lines and bomb loaders. Well, that wasn't accurate because the Japanese fueled and loaded their planes in the hangar deck not the flight deck, so I apologize for that. Speaking of, I actually watched the Midway movie the other day, since I'm stuck in my apartment due to everything being on lockdown, and it actually wasn't that bad. I was expecting something like the absolutely god-awful Pearl Harbor movie from a few years ago, but it wasn't that at all. Sure, the Midway movie has all the action war movie tropes, but it is a decent survey of the events of the early Pacific Naval Campaign, which I appreciated and many of the events we discussed in the show in the last few episodes are depicted in the movie. So if you're so inclined, it might not be a bad stop in one of your binge-watching sessions. So on to the actual show. In this episode, we continue with the Battle of Guadalcanal and discuss the Battle of Cape Esperance, another one of the many naval engagements to take place in the waters of the Eastern Solomons. We will then conclude today's episode with a short biography of Admiral Bull Halsey, setting the stage for the eventual conclusion to the Epic of Guadalcanal. Having completed that, we'll talk the invasion of New Guinea and the Battle of Santa Cruz, which should wrap 1942 in the Pacific. We'll then turn back to North Africa to talk El Alamein, and start talking about Operation Torch, and hopefully finish North Africa in 1942 in two episodes. Then, our proverbial Eye of Sauron will shift its gates to the Eastern Front and finish out 1942 there. So what's that, like five or six episodes left in 1942? What have I got myself into? Okay, enough self-pity for the insane task I've saddled myself with. Let's begin episode 28, Death Island. Ah, have been astonished that Japan should in a single day have plunged into war against the United States and the British Empire. What kind of a people do they think we are? Is it possible they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them until they have been taught a lesson which they and the world will never forget? September 1942 would end much as it had progressed the last few weeks. After the arrival of the Sendai Division on the island, General Vandegrift decided he needed to alter his defense to prepare for them. To do this, he dispatched Chesty Puller and his battalion to occupy the eastern shore of the Madanikau by force. 
Moving out from the main perimeter westward toward the Sendais, it was not long before contact was made with Japanese infantry. The 7th Marines, despite tough training prior to arrival on the island, were unprepared for maneuver in the jungle. They were exhausted before ever making contact. The heat and uneven terrain got to them before the Japanese ever did. So after a fierce firefight, Colonel Puller's battalion withdrew, suffering 170 casualties, 65 killed, 105 wounded. September 1942 had been a rough month on both the Japanese and the Allies. The Marines had spent the last three weeks getting continually thumped by the Japanese by way of sea, land, and air, all the while enduring the endemic threats of the jungle, including bugs, disease, and just the unending heat and humidity. The Japanese, for their part, though not subject to daily harassment, had been thoroughly licked by the Marines, suffering serious defeats in two battles already. The experience of Japanese on Guadalcanal had been so traumatic from suffering horrendous casualties in every engagement and succumbing to the elements that they had taken to calling the island Shinoshima, Death Island. After his arrival on October 4th, General Moriyama, unimpressed by the fatalism of the men already on the island, issued an edict to try and instill in his men a sense of purpose and vigor, who were getting first-hand accounts from the survivors of the horrors they had witnessed. Quote, from now on, the occupation of Guadalcanal is under the observations of the whole world. Do not expect to return, not even one man, if the occupation is not successful. Everyone must remember the honor of the emperor. Fear no enemy. Yield to material matters. Show the strength of steel and stone, and advance valiantly and ferociously. Hit the enemy opponents so hard, they will not rise again. End quote. If you ask me, I don't find that directive to be particularly reassuring. But perhaps the calculus of a Japanese soldier in the 1940s was a bit different than mine. Regardless, General Moriyama began searching for a jumping-off point for his attack on Henderson Field. Apparently, he read the terrain the same way General Vandegrift did, and so chose the east bank of the Madanikau as the key terrain for a successful attack on the perimeter. On October 5th, General Vandegrift chose to try and occupy the east bank of the river again, himself, but this time sent five battalions instead of just one to be commanded by Red Mike Edson. This time, the force was large enough to overwhelm what defenders they found, but torrential rains on the second day bogged down their advance, and the sighting of a large enemy fleet caused Vandegrift to withdraw the force once again to prevent them from being caught with their flank exposed in an unimproved position. On October 9th, Puller was sent forward of the Matanigao again to conduct a reconnaissance in force. The Marines would enjoy much more success at this time than they had during their previous two attempts. As the 1st Battalion's 7th Marines crested a bald ridgeline, they discovered a swarm of Japanese soldiers in the ravine below. Puller immediately coordinated a massive combined arms attack by fire on the surprised Japanese. The 2nd Battalion of the 4th Japanese Infantry Regiment was caught completely vulnerable, and they paid the costliest price in blood. The Marines brought to bear company and battalion mortars, as well as regimental and division artillery, supplemented by aerial bombardment. While indirect fire began executing its toll on the enemy, Puller's machine gun teams began emplacing their tripods and firing into the panicked Japanese, while individual riflemen picked off the enemies who attempted to escape the ravine. In Chesty Puller's words, he had created a veritable machine of death. Puller and his men sent 700 men to their graves in the maelstrom of lead and fire they had created in the valley 
and completely repulsed General Moriyama's attempt to seize the east bank of the Matanikau. 200 more men were killed in Moriyama's 4th Regiment, and now the men of the Sendai Division knew firsthand why the Kawaguchis had nicknamed Guadalcanal Death Island. The Marines had suffered 65 dead and 125 wounded. This, of course, was only a solitary victory in the long string of engagements that made up the battle for Guadalcanal. As the Marines were fighting along the banks of the Matanikau, the Japanese Navy was ferrying more troops, supplies, and equipment to the island. Ferrying this force were six destroyers and two seaplane tenders, which would be joined by three cruisers, which had been dispatched separately to shell Henderson Field. On the night of October 11th, at about 11.30, they were intercepted off Cape Esperance, just northwest of Savo Island, by Rear Admiral Norman Scott and his force of four cruisers and five destroyers. As the Japanese force, under Admiral Jojima, cruised southeast toward Iron Bottom Bay, they were interdicted by the American force. Admiral Scott had caught them by surprise and managed to cross the T, as it were, meaning his battle line was perpendicular to Jojima's, and he was able to bring all his guns to bear on the Japanese, while only the forward guns of the forward ship could effectively target the American ships. The cruiser Salt Lake City tore through Furukata with her 8-inch guns, cutting her in half and sending her to the bottom. The rest of the American ships unleashed salvo after salvo at the Japanese, as well as sinking an additional Japanese destroyer, and they sent the heavy cruiser Aoba limping home, having landed 40 hits on her. It was a wonder she stayed afloat at all. The next morning, the Cactus Air Force capitalized on the previous night's success and sank two more Japanese destroyers. All the while, the men on shore could hear the explosions, feel the percussion blasts, and see the sudden flash of naval gunfire. Iron Bottom Bay had been wrestled out of Japanese hands, and they no longer had naval superiority in the critical waters off Guadalcanal. The Navy would once again be able to support the men on the island. This was of little comfort in the short term, however, because the Japanese remained in force on the island and had managed to get four 155mm howitzers on the island with which to pummel Henderson Field and Vandegrift's headquarters. The Americans had managed to get more men on shore too, though. The Army's 164th Infantry Regiment had arrived as well and was preparing to enter the fray. October 12th began a series of six terrible days and nights for the Marines and soldiers on the island. The day after landing, the 164th Infantry was treated to the hospitality of the Japanese Air Force. At noon, 24 Betty bombers descended on Henderson Field and caught the defenders completely by surprise. The Australian Coast Watchers, who normally provided advance warning so the Cactus Air Force Wildcat fighters could get aloft in time, had not provided forewarning because they were operating on radio silence to protect themselves from increasing Japanese presence. The Japanese bombs tore through fuel stores, setting the whole airfield alight, and two hours later, another wave arrived to add to the carnage. Both times, the bombers arrived without warning, but both times, the Wildcats did eventually get aloft and drive them off after battling with the Zeros. That afternoon, a third wave arrived, but this time struck the coconut grove that the 164th Infantry was bivouacked in. Bombs exploded among the soldiers, treating them to their first taste of combat. Worse, after recovering from the aerial attack, they discovered the Marines had pilfered their duffel bags. Welcome to Guadalcanal. After the day's aerial attack ceased, the men on Guadalcanal got about six hours respite before the next bombardment. 
At 1.30 in the morning, a single green flare hovered over the airfield, and every man who saw its sickening green glow knew what it meant. Naval bombardment. This would not be anything like they had experienced heretofore, however, because the mighty 14-inch guns of the battleships Congo and Haruna had arrived. Their guns would be joined by the 8-inchers of the Isuzu and the 5-inch guns of the accompanying destroyers. The thump of the battleships firing their guns could not only be heard, but felt in the chests of the men in their foxholes. Then, half a minute later, they'd hear the whoosh of a freight train pass overhead. Then finally, the worst part, the massive crash of the shells as they impacted and exploded unleashing a terrible roar that deafened the ears and pulled the air from a man's lungs. The terrible bombardment could be physically painful, even for those not directly impacted by it. The staccato pressure spikes wreak havoc in the sinuses and inner ear and can cause toothaches. But then, of course, there was the psychological impact. The soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marines on Guadalcanal were on the receiving end of the worst naval bombardment anyone suffered anywhere in the war. Sure, the Japanese would be subject to the big guns of the Missouri, but they would be in well-prepared bunkers, dug deep into volcanic islands. The men on Guadalcanal had to endure in shallow mud huts and wooden shanties. This they endured for a full 80 minutes, the whole time gripping onto their sanity and just barely holding back madness. A battle which not every man won. After the fleet ended its shelling, the bombers took over and continued their work. In total, 41 men died from the bombardment that night, mostly the pilots and air crews who were the intended target. The airfield itself was in rough shape too, blown to pieces, cratered, and the aircraft themselves wrecked. Only four of the 38 bombers were still in flying shape the next morning. Undaunted, the survivors flew that morning to strike at the Japanese transports which had deposited men overnight and managed to sink one. During the day, repairs began. The CBs began filling in cratered runways and rebuilding the infrastructure around the airfield. The mechanics began repairing planes and cannibalizing the ones that were too far gone, but still had parts to be pilfered. Through sheer grit, determination, and spite, the ground crews were able to bring 10 aircraft back into the flying force that day. That night, the Japanese would again try to grind down the Cactus Air Force. Unfortunately, they then realized they were running out of aviation fuel right as a flight of six dauntless dive bombers arrived to bolster the defenses. General Geiger had a tough decision to make. With low fuel, he had to tell the gas-guzzling B-17s to leave the island. He then had to find ways of scrounging up fuel, so began draining the tanks of wrecked aircraft and sent a team out to dig up 400 drums of fuel that had been buried as a reserve when they arrived on the island. He then arranged for aerial resupply to bring in nothing but avgas, he was preparing an aerial sally from the siege of Henderson Field. He grounded all aircraft during the day on October 14th to husband his strength and allow the ground crews to focus on recovering aircraft. Once again, on the night of the 14th to the 15th, the Japanese Navy bombarded the airfield with the cruisers Chokai and Kinugasa, though they did not inflict the devastating damage of the previous night's shelling. The next morning, the Marines on the higher ridges could see Japanese transports unloading more men and material. They were completely in the open and undefended, having been assured by the naval commanders that American air power on Guadalcanal was now defunct from receiving such a devastating pummeling. They were wrong, however. General Geiger's efforts had paid off. At 10 in the morning of October 15th, 
every plane they could muster was sent aloft to harass the Japanese transports and harass the troops already ashore. It was a ragtag sortie for sure, and it was not a fatal blow to the Japanese, but it demonstrated that the Americans were still there, still fighting. This act of defiance would earn the Americans yet another night of hell. On the night of October 15th to 16th, two Japanese heavy cruisers sent 1,500 shells screeching into the airfield, bringing the total aircraft lost over the three days to 41, and an additional 16 simply damaged. This left the Cactus Air Force with 25 bombers and 9 fighters in flying condition. Fortunately, 19 additional Wildcat fighters arrived on the 16th, led by Lieutenant Colonel Harold Joe Bauer, probably the best Marine aviator of the war, maybe ever. Before he even landed, Bauer started racking up kills. As his squadron approached the island, a Japanese dive bomber flight was vectored to attack the American ships in the bay. Bauer, nearly out of fuel and simply ferrying to Henderson, chose to attack anyway and brought down four valve dive bombers, right then and there. This engagement brought his total kills to 11 and earned him a Medal of Honor. As the Japanese Navy was pummeling the men on Guadalcanal, Admiral Yamamoto held a conference on the island of Truk. The intransigence of the Marines prompted the Admiral to contribute the strength of the combined fleet to the defeat of the American forces on the Solomon Islands. Four carriers, four battleships, eight cruisers, and 28 destroyers were now in the dugout waiting to be put to use. General Hyatuke was pleased and left his headquarters at Rabul to lead his men to victory personally on Guadalcanal. General Moriyama showed Hyatuke his battle plan, which involved a tank thrust across the Madanikau and an infantry assault across Nippon Bridge. Hyatuke approved. A few days later, on October 18th, Admiral William Frederick Halsey, or Bull Halsey, led his carrier force into harbor at New Caledonia. There, a whaling vessel pulled up alongside his flagship, and one of its officers came aboard. The man handed Halsey an envelope, with a message marked secret inside. Nimitz had placed him in command of the South Pacific area, relieving Gormley. This came as a breath of fresh air to General Vandegrift, who was shocked at Gormley's seeming lack of care for the Marines' fate on Guadalcanal. Halsey had a reputation for being a fighter, and he would give the Marines the support they needed to win, not let them wither and fall under siege. Nobody knew it yet, but the tide of battle was beginning to turn. Halsey was just the man for the job. A native of Elizabeth, New Jersey, he had dreamed of following in his father's footsteps and becoming a naval officer. He was direct, and not one for arbitrary rules or red tape. When he finished high school, his method of gaining an appointment to the Naval Academy was simply to just write a letter to the president asking for one. He didn't waste time writing as congressman. He just went straight to the top. Why not, right? Unfortunately, this approach did not work so well. So William Halsey entered into the University of Virginia for his first year of study, where he studied medicine and football. Eventually, his parents were able to secure for him his coveted slot at the Naval Academy in Annapolis, where he continued his football career in general tomfoolery. Unfortunately, his grades there reflected his academic commitment. Being a young man full of vim and vinegar, he considered his chief purpose as a midshipman to play football. And when not on the gridiron, he preferred to go out on the town, without permission, mind you, than study. This brought him to the cusp of academic expulsion, which his father regarded contemptuously and told his son to quit football and focus on his grades. William told him that he'd rather fail than stop playing. 
William must have realized the peril he was putting himself in, though, and boned up for his exams, which he aced with a score of 3.98 out of 4. Soon enough, he had graduated and was off to the fleet, but not before the school's master-at-arms told him he'd never be the officer or man his father was. Ensign Halsey's first assignment was to the USS Missouri, ironically enough, not the massive 45,000-ton Mighty Mo that would eventually be his flagship, but the relatively modest 12,500-ton Mizzy. Following that, he was assigned to the USS Kansas in 1907, the most advanced ship in the American Navy at the time, and part of the glorious Great White Fleet dispatched by President Teddy Roosevelt to tour the world and display America's burgeoning military might. It was while aboard the Kansas that he earned his lifelong nickname Bull when a child shouted, quote, Hey, pipe the guy with a face like a bulldog, unquote, while on parade in San Diego, or so the story goes. It was also while on tour with the fleet that he developed a lifelong distaste for the Japanese. Their ever-courteous and formal cultural norms were antithetical to Halsey's gruff and direct way of conducting himself. Following the tour, he was assigned to Norfolk Naval Base in Virginia, where he met his soon-to-be wife, Margaret, whose uncle happened to have been an engineer aboard the Merrimack during the Civil War. The two were married in 1909 and bore three children. In 1914, Halsey met the young Franklin Delano Roosevelt for the first time, and they developed a friendship and regard for one another that would last the rest of their lives. This was also the year that the Secretary of the Navy issued Order 99, making the fleet dry. Alcohol-free, that is. He hated the order and thought it anathema to life at sea, but obeyed it begrudgingly. Mostly. Halsey famously said, As a general rule, I never trust a fighting man who doesn't smoke or drink. During the First World War, Lieutenant Halsey commanded the destroyer Benham, during which time his greatest ambition was to sink a U-boat, which led to a rather embarrassing incident in which he claimed to have sunk one, but really just depth-charged a buoy. It wasn't until after the war that he got to prove his tactical prowess while off the California coast in 1921. By now, Commander Halsey was placed in command of a squadron of destroyers in maneuvers against four battleships. He managed to outmaneuver the battleship force and unleash a flurry of blunted training torpedoes against the battleship hulls and inflicted real damage, about $1.5 million worth. This infuriated not only the battleship skippers, but also the penny-pinching, isolationist interwar congress. Following this, he continued along the typical career progression, attending the Army and Navy War Colleges, he served as a naval attaché in Germany and Scandinavia, and as the executive officer aboard the USS Wyoming. Then, in 1934, he made a most unusual career move and applied to attend the Naval Aviation School in Pensacola, Florida, as a captain, the equivalent of an Army colonel attending the basic infantry course. While there, he was technically barred from flying, due to his poor eyesight, but somehow still managed to get himself behind the controls. During his lessons, he performed... Well, he performed. Twice, he earned himself the Flying Jackass Award, once for barreling into a boundary light while on the ground, and a second time for landing on his back. When another student managed to earn the award for himself, Halsey refused to relinquish it. He wanted to take it with him and install it in the bulkhead of his next command to remind himself of it before chewing out any subordinate. His next command would be the mighty Saratoga, and his flight school experience would prove invaluable as a flat-top commander. It would not be the Sarah that he commanded in battle, however, but rather the Enterprise. By December 1941, he had achieved the rank of three-star vice-admiral, 
and was ferrying planes out to Wake Island. As soon as his fleet was in the open ocean, he ordered live ordnance loaded on all planes and for the torpedo tubes to be loaded. His operations officer protested, but Halsey got his way. If they got into a scuffle with the Japanese and sparked an international incident, so be it. The Japanese, as it happened, would be the ones to spark the international incident ten days later when they bombed Pearl Harbor. When his flotilla returned to Pearl Harbor on December 8th and witnessed the wreckage, it instilled in the men a sense of dread and panic, just as it had the rest of the country. Halsey's Task Force 8 was the only fighting force in the entire theater, so he had to take them right back out to sea again the next day, where the sailors' jumpiness manifested itself. Seemingly every few minutes, someone spotted something. A periscope? No, just a white top. Torpedo? No, just a dolphin. One lieutenant standing watch shouted that the destroyer ahead of them had been sunk when it had in fact simply disappeared behind a swell. Bull Halsey had had enough. He chewed the man out right then and there, in front of the entire bridge crew. The false report seemed to stop then, but morale was still low and defeatism still permeated the ship. On February 1st, Admiral Halsey led Task Force 8 on an air raid of the Gilbert and Marshall Islands. As they approached, a Japanese scout plane was spotted but apparently the plane did not notice the fleet, so the next day Halsey sent a message reading, quote, From the American admiral in charge of this striking force to the Japanese admiral on the Marshall Islands, it is a pleasure to thank you for having your patrol plane not sight my force, end quote. A strange move to be sure, but Halsey had learned of the Japanese strict honor code while on tour there, and had hoped this would cause the pilot to be forced to kill himself and remove one more combatant from the field. The Japanese were caught totally surprised, and Halsey's raiders did excellent work. The fleet was brought within visual distance of the islands, and six sorties were launched just before dawn, both in violation of American naval doctrine. They destroyed many of the airfield buildings and dozens of planes on the ground, as well as shooting down 50 aircraft and sinking 16 Japanese ships. The raid was not uncontested, however, and the Japanese sent a strike force to retaliate. Five Betty bombers hurled themselves toward the bridge of the Enterprise, and Halsey threw himself down on the deck. Their bombs barely missed, but then another Betty made a pass. The plane was in flames and almost crashed right into the deck of the Enterprise, but only clipped her side before plunging into the sea. When the Admiral rose, he found a young yeoman first class laughing hysterically at him. The Admiral pointed right at him and yelled, Make this man a chief! Upon the return from the raid, Task Force 8's morale had recovered, and their exploits had restored morale back home. Bull Halsey was now a hero, and a household name, for being the first one to take the fight back to the Japanese. In wake of their success, Nimitz prepared Halsey to strike out once again, this time against the recently captured Wake Island. His force was redesignated Task Force 13, and the operation was to be carried out on February 13th. Halsey, a deeply superstitious man, as sailors and baseball players tend to be, was aghast. He called Nimitz and asked him if he'd lost his mind. Nimitz humored Halsey's predilections and changed the task force to 16 and moved the date up one day to February 14th. This raid went just as well as the raid on the Marshall Islands, and a raid on Marcus Island followed on its heels. The raid on Marcus caused the Japanese to panic, as the island is only a thousand miles from the mainland. One thousand miles being just a hop, skip, and a jump in the vast expanses of the Pacific Ocean. In Tokyo, air raid sirens blared and the city was blacked out, hopefully causing at least some disruption to the Japanese war effort. Upon returning from this raid, 
Halsey had some time to speak with the press and enjoyed his time in the limelight. He touted his disregard for rules and procedure as the reason for his success. He explained that, quote, The reason we brought off these early raids is that we violated all the rules and traditions of naval warfare. We did the exact opposite of what the enemy expected. We did not keep our carriers behind the battle. We deliberately exposed them to shore-based planes. Most important, whatever we did, did it fast. End quote. Six months at sea under constant threat of Japanese attack had taken its toll on the Admiral, though. He was diagnosed with dermatitis, which he blamed on the sun, but which was really due to nerves and stress. He had been more or less living on the bridge the entire time, all the while chain-smoking, drinking copious amounts of coffee, and sleeping only two or three hours a night. This punishing lifestyle cost him 20 pounds and his health. It also cost him command at Midway. While he was temporarily relieved to recover, the task force was sent off to the most famous carrier battle in history. Midway was the only major naval battle that Halsey would miss over the course of the entire war, and by October, he was back on the bridge of the Enterprise, preparing to rip the Eastern Solomons from the clutches of the Japanese. Thank you.